You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, this morning we pick up where we last left off. Last time we looked at the book of Psalms. This morning we are in Psalm 27. Psalm 27. If you're looking at the Pew Bibles, it's on page 460. Continue working through this first book of the Psalms. And as we've seen, the Psalms are not a random assortment of these hymns. They are intentionally placed there. And I think what we've found ourselves in in this series of Psalms is a number that are tied together thematically. There's a lot of very similar themes we see in Psalm 27 that we saw last time in Psalm 26. We see the goodness of God, the deliverance from evil, the centrality and importance of worship in the life of the believer. But of course, we see a new articulation and wonderful truths for us that lead us to great confidence in Christ and his blessings. So let's turn our attention to the reading of God's word this morning from Psalm 27. Hear now the word of the Lord, of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in a shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Are you growing as a Christian? How would you answer that question? I knew a godly older man who once I would meet with him often, whenever we got together, he would ask, what is the Lord teaching you right now? What would you say to this kind, humble man? Are you growing in the Lord? Maybe we should even back up and say, do we have a category for this? 
What does Christian growth look like? How do I even grow? And there's so much to be said about this topic, but this psalm is going to be a sure guide for us on one, one small part of growing as a Christian. So I think what's so interesting about this psalm, it's an extended reflection upon God's gracious redemption, but it's also an example for us for how we can take the promises of the gospel to heart and grow. David takes a central truth of the gospel and then he meditates upon it and then he prays over it. We see the word, God's word is used by God's spirit to grow us. So we ought to be students of his word who meditate and who pray. God's word is used by God's spirit to grow us. So we ought to be students of the word who meditate and pray. We're going to simply look at this truth that David puts out for us that he's meditating upon. And then we're going to look at how he meditates and then how he prays through this truth. And it's a wonderful example for us, for our own lives. We also go deeper into the heart of Christ as we see this as well. So first, let's look at verse one. And this is the truth. This is this main theme that will be reverberating throughout the entire psalm. And it is this, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? These two parallel couplets, four lines, but it's reiterating two main claims. First, Yahweh is my light, my salvation, and the stronghold of my life. And then second, there's no one to be afraid of. So these two claims, this is the, the central core that we, we will be meditating upon. And he prays regarding so let's unpack these a little bit, and we'll see David doing this more later, but unpack this a little bit. This first claim is that Yahweh is my light, my salvation, and the stronghold of my life. So he identifies the God who he acknowledges. It's Yahweh, that special covenant name of God as we speak of so often. This is the God who is the God who has redeemed, the God who has rescued, and every time that word is used, there's so much meaning packed into it his nature, his character, his actions, his covenantal dealings with his people all come to mind. So he's identifying this God and this God, he says, is my light. This is a common way of describing God in his moral purity and in his redeeming work. We read from Micah 7 earlier and it says this, when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. So God is light and is perfection in illuminating what is true and what is right. But ultimately that light is a, as we'll see in a moment, a saving light. A light that drives the darkness away, that removes the darkness and sin. Jesus is the one who claimed in John 8, I am the light of the world. This God who is our light, this is Jesus himself who is our light. So God is my light, he's my salvation, David says. And this word salvation can either mean a physical deliverance or a spiritual deliverance. And often in the Old Testament, we see this salvation is often a physical deliverance of some kind. Think of Israel coming out of Egypt, that salvation that God worked for them. But this physical salvation, outward salvation, is always a metaphor to describe spiritual salvation from sin and death. It's a picture to show us. And that's why Simeon, one of my favorite characters in all of the scripture, when he sees the infant Jesus in the temple on the eighth day when he's presented for circumcision, 
He comes up to him and has this glorious prayer to God. And he says, now my eyes have seen your salvation. He saw the infant Jesus in the temple and he said, this is God's salvation. He's come to save his people. This is salvation. And when this word is used, there's an implied deliverance from something. And as David speaks of physical enemies here, real, actual enemies, that's ultimately not what it's speaking of. It's pointing us to a greater enemy than even armies encamped. Speaking of that ultimate nemesis of the human race, that's sin itself. The enemy who seeks to destroy, who does destroy. And so that's why this salvation is incredibly good news. It's not good news if there's no sin. It's not good news if there's no condemnation. If I don't need to be saved from anything, but it's true as those enemies encamped around David and his people, so true, sin encamps around us and seeks to destroy us. So our salvation God is our salvation and has delivered us from this sin, delivered us from the ultimate nemesis. And he calls God the stronghold of my life as well. The stronghold, a fortress, a defense, a protector, one who protects my very life, my existence. I'm kept safe in the vault of God's care. And I hate even to blow past these things too quickly because these things are so wonderful, but we'll see how David unpacks them more throughout the rest of this, this psalm. And so that's the, the first statement is what God is. And, and the real implication from this is one, do not be afraid. And that's what David mentions in, first, in the first verse. There's no one I need to be afraid of, afraid of. If all these things are true, if God truly is life or light and salvation and the stronghold of my life, then there's nobody to be afraid of. Who is anybody compared to almighty God, Yahweh? There's no one to be afraid of. Now we're not talking about good, healthy fears, I want every 16-year-old who gets into a car to be afraid of what that car can do. There's a healthy fear of something dangerous. He's talking here of ultimate fears, a fear for, for your life above all things, a fear for how other people think of you. And that's your ultimate God, your idol. We read Jesus saying, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Jesus is reflecting this exact truth that is here. We don't need to be afraid of anyone because all they can do is afflict us outwardly. They cannot touch the fact that we are God's children. There's no one to be afraid of. Your salvation is sure. Your your rescue from sin and death is secure. Your soul is safe. Whatever anyone can do to you outwardly, they cannot touch your eternal state. So we have these truths laid out. And it's so easy for these to be be kept as, as mere abstractions, as theological things that we assent to. But how do we apply this? We can say, maybe I should feel without fear, but how do we actually go that step to, to, to not be afraid? How is this more than theoretical Ideas And David does a wonderful job of showing this to us. So we first look at David meditating upon God's word, verses two through six. So let's look at this for a few moments. So we have these truths, and now David is meditating upon them. Now, Christian meditation is not an emptying of the mind. It's not Eastern mysticism. It's not getting in touch with some internal reality. Christian meditation is mulling over, chewing on that which is true. It's an intentional action of putting yourself in the way of God's word. 
Meditating is an intentional action of putting yourself in the way of God's word. And David's meditation here, I think, circles around a few different questions he's asking. And the first one is this. What does this mean? What do these truths mean when I face difficulty? Particular, external attacks. What happens if somebody attacks me? How are these things true for me in that moment? David is sitting and consciously applying this to a moment in his life that may come or maybe he's experiencing at that time. And he shows us in verse two and three, as he sits and reflects, he says, he pronounces, he proclaims, even if there are evildoers, even if there are adverse adversaries, even if there are foes who attack and harm me, he says, my heart shall not fail. See, he's, he's taking this. He's not just saying it's a mere truth, but he's saying it applies to me and I need not fail. My heart will not fail because God is my salvation. These enemies will be the ones who actually stumble and fall because they have no savior. They have no eternal security, no salvation. They will ultimately stumble and fall. It's not me who's going to fall. He asks another question. What does this mean is most important in life? What is the most important thing to me now that my most important thing isn't preserving even my own life? The most important thing for me is not making sure my fortress is built up, that my castle is protected. The most important thing now comes in verse four. See, the salvation of God reorients us. And David reflects that here. One thing I've asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Salvation, light, and the stronghold has now given him new priorities. It's not just, yeah, maybe I should go to church, but he says, I desire this one thing, the ultimate thing I'm going to seek after all the days of my life is to dwell in God's house to walk with God's people, to worship him. It's because nothing else is that fundamentally important to him any longer. He's saved. He has salvation. He has security. What happens to him in this world is not going to affect his eternal standing before God. So he can say, now I have a radical new priority. I mean, I think this is pretty stunningly weird. Right? In our world, isn't it stunningly strange to say, yeah, I want to live at church. I want to go every single time the doors are open. I want to worship morning and evening. I want to be there on weekdays. I want to be there every time. I want to gather with my family. I want to worship and be in God's house every day. He says he wants to dwell there, to take up residence there. He wants to go and to learn, to worship, to inquire of God, he says, to seek after him, to learn more of him, of his goodness. Because here he knows he's safe from the storm. Here he knows that the howling of the wind will not affect him because he is secure. That salvation is sealed as he's among the people of God. He knows he's secure. He feels the grace of God upon him. So his priorities are now radically changed as he's meditating upon what is the implication of these truths for my priorities? What's most important in my life? This is the most important thing now is worshiping God. And as he looks to the future, what, what does this mean about my future? My, my daily life here going from here on out, verses five and six. He says, even if there's trouble, he's gonna hide me in the shelter. Even when there's problems, I will be concealed under his cover. 
his tent, his protection will cover me no matter what comes. I can face difficulties with the sure certainty. Doesn't mean we don't, we aren't challenged in our faith. It doesn't mean there, are, there aren't difficulties. But what it means is the ultimate foundation is there and I can take heart. Because he will lift me high upon a rock. And he continues in verse six, just goes on and on. And, and, and when these trouble comes, I can't wait to worship. I can't wait to keep worshiping and praising and singing and glorifying God. These truths, you see as he's chewing on them, drawing out whatever he can from him, he's resting more and more in the goodness of God, of what these promises mean practically on the ground for him. This meditation is growing David in confidence, not in himself, not that he's a good guy, not that he's got it all together, but a growing confidence in his savior. He's growing in confidence in God. This is a Godward focused meditation. He's resting in a God who promises everything for his children and he grabs hold of them. He applies them. He says, what if this happens? What does this mean about God? And he answers the questions based on God's promises and on his word. He's driven deeper into the depths of God's goodness. So how do we meditate? How does this help us see meditating on God's word and to practice it? And I think maybe this was uh, maybe a private meditation of David initially. And so that, yes, we meditate on God's word privately. And, and I'm all for reading through the Bible in a year plans. And it's wonderful. and Keeps you on track and accountable. But sometimes what we do, if we're just driving through to check the box, to get through that day's assignment, we can miss this reality. We can miss savoring God's word. Maybe we read such a large swath that we, we forget to savor the goodness of God. We've checked the box and we forget about it. So meditating, yes, we do this privately as we sit in a, a truth of God's word. We let it, we ruminate upon it. We let it fill our, our minds and our hearts. We think about it. We interrogate it. We inquire of it. And yes, we can do this privately. But I think this is also something we do together. We do this corporately. And I think what we hope to do, and at its best, what we are doing even right here, right now, is we are all together collectively meditating on God's word together. Yes, it's a proclamation. Yes, it is God telling us what is good and true. And as we, are, as we hear what is true of God, together we're meditating. Together we're saying, what does this mean for my life? We're not all passive recipients of, of some 30-minute talk at church. We're all engaging, meditating, saying, where does this apply in my heart and my life? We're meditating together. And we can follow up on this time together of the preaching of God's word. And we can take one part of the sermon, one part of the passage, and then we can take that even throughout the week and intentionally come back to it, intentionally engage, intentionally meditate on God's word every day, coming back to that which is true and good. And there's so many other things we can meditate on, other questions we can ask of God's word. What is this implication for how I live? How do I treat others? How do I treat my spouse? How do I raise my children? How do I make major life decisions? What college I'm going to go to? What activities should I be involved in? What job should I take? Where should I move? We can interrogate God's word. We can begin to see not 
specific answers to these things. We can begin to see how God upholds us and guides us, even in the midst of these questions. As we interrogate God's word, we can ask, how does it show me more about God and his glory and his grace? What can I learn about my sin? All of these things are mined as we look at God's word, looking at it from, its, from various angles, seeking to understand it deeply. So let us meditate on God's word, not just today, not just for an hour on a, on a Sunday, but every day, keep God's word in our mind and in our heart. Hide it in your heart, right? The Psalm says, so that we can meditate and know it. But David doesn't stop just at meditating on God's word. He goes a step further. These truths he comes into require him to take petitions to the Lord. These truths that he comes in contact with make him go to the Lord. They drive him to the Lord. They don't drive him more into himself. They drive him to God. And so that's why after meditating, he goes into prayer. And we see this in verse, verses 7 through 12. And fundamentally, this whole section, what he's doing, he's coming to God and saying, would you be faithful to this promise you made? Would you be faithful? You've promised to be my light, my salvation. Would you be faithful to that? You promised to be my stronghold. I need you to be faithful. It's calling God to fulfill his promises. It's calling God to be faithful to his own word. And of course, he will be. But this is a part of the, the dynamic exchange even between God's word and God's people. We respond out of, out of his word with petitions. He says in verse seven, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. This isn't a, a desperate plea like God isn't there or anything of the sort. Although sometimes we do struggle with those ideas and we are worried, is God even there for me? And we bring those petitions to the Lord as well. But what David, I think here is doing, is saying, Lord, I know you have promised to be gracious and answer. And so Lord, answer me. I'm coming to you. I need you to hear me, to receive me as a child, to answer me, to deliver me from sin and from my enemies. So that's really what he's doing is that, will you be faithful to your promise? And he knows that one of the core promises of God's salvation of what it even means that he's Yahweh. He says to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. Those pronouns are so important. In the beginning, he's, God is my light, my salvation, the stronghold of my life. God is ours. He's given himself to us. And so he answers our prayer. He listens to us. He hears us. He is our God. He's just not an abstract God out there. He is our God belonging to us as we belong to him. And he says this in various ways. He continues, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. I'm seeking you, O Lord. But just think about for, that, for a moment, this gracious command to seek my face. What a, a wonderful command of God. God is, this is ultimately really an offer of salvation. This is ultimately saying, come to me and I will give you everything that you need. Seek my blessing of my face. That's why we see in the doxology, right? The blessing of God's face is peace and salvation. He says, I'm seeking your face. I'm looking for you. I'm coming to you. Give me your face. Do not hide your face from me, he says. And the seeking and the trusting 
continues. As every time he comes to the Lord, pleading God be faithful, he is trusting him a little bit more and a little bit more. It grows, his trust grows through prayer and God's word. And David is exercising that muscle of faith here. And we do it every time we come to the throne of grace. And it leads him to greater confidence. And he goes on and and we shouldn't spend all day, I could spend all day, as you know, going through each and every line here. But he says, you're not, I, I don't want you to hide your face from me. There's maybe an experience of deep rejection by his parents, he indicates here. I've been rejected by those who ought to love me, but Lord, please don't reject me. I need you. I need your light in my life. I'm disoriented without you. In verse 11, it reminds us that we are called to live a righteous life. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Lord, I need you to help me because I don't know how to live all the time. I don't know what I ought to do. I don't know even what's right and wrong at times. And I don't know what's wise at others. Lead me. Teach me your way. Lead me on a level path. Do you pour yourself out before God like this? Do you take his promises and then plead them before the throne of grace? That's what the, the catechism says prayer is. It's an offering up of our desires to the Lord for things agreeable to his will. And what's his will? It's his word. We can come to his word and say, Lord, I know these things are agreeable to your will because you've told me they are. These are my desires. May you answer them according to your will, according to your word. I think we often don't know how to pray. And if we always ask each other, you know, how's your prayer life? Of course, we always want to look away and not answer. Because we all know that we can grow there. And some of that is we don't know what to pray. How do I even pray? Of course, we have the Lord's Prayer, a great guide, and we can use that for for an example to pray. And each petition we can can, uh, expand upon in our own words and in light of our own experiences and our own lives. But this is another way to pray, to guide us in our prayers, to take a promise of God, take a piece of scripture, even a command of God. Shall have no other gods before me. And to say, Lord, help me be faithful. Help me to have no other God before me. Help me die to all of the idols in my life that I may serve you. Whatever it is, if it's a promise, may it, may we pray to God and say, Lord, be faithful to this promise. Whatever it is, we can come to the Lord on the basis of his word and use that to guide us and help us pray. Where do we find it difficult to believe? Pray about it. Where we find it difficult to understand, pray about it. To apply it, pray about it. Where you, can't, where you feel like you can't trust the Lord, pray about it. And let's let our prayers be directed by Scripture. You can see these prayers, they're all rooted in the promises of God from verse 1. That God would be his light and his salvation, his stronghold. He doesn't want to be afraid. So he asks God to be faithful to these promises. So what comes of this? Say we have this truth and we meditate upon it, ruminate on it, we pray through it before the throne of grace, so what? I think there's a a lovely conclusion here that is full of encouragement for us. Verses 13 and 14. I think we see here as David concludes the psalm, I think we see a real growth in faith. Christian growth isn't always perceptible. It's not like you have a a prayer time in your closet and you get out and you say, all right, I'm, you know, three steps closer to God today. That's not how Christian growth works. It's 
almost never perceptible. We almost never take giant leaps. It's a slow, plodding, unglamorous task. And the Christian life is full of ups and downs, but there is a gradual upward trajectory for the Christian nonetheless. David says this, I believe. I believe. He starts with this intentional statement of his faith. He said, this is what I believe. This is a conscious decision. This is not a blind faith, but this is a sure faith based on the promises of God to say, yes, I trust you. I believe. It's what we do when we confess our faith every week. We're renewing our faith. We're growing in our faith. When we have the Apostles' Creed this week, how does it begin? Same way, I believe. We say these things from the heart with faith, trusting in God. It's not a mere exercise to go through. In the same way, David, when he concludes, I believe, we're seeing God working in his life. We're seeing a small, maybe imperceptible growth in him. We see him comforted, strengthened, increasing in faith. And what is important for us to remember here that with, without this faith, without saying, I believe, without being able to take the creed and say, I believe, I look to Jesus Christ, without these things, none of these promises are true. They're not yours, and you can't pretend that they are. Without this, without looking to Christ, there's no hope. That's why he is the salvation. It's not salvation for all, but he says, Seek my face. And those who seek his face, that's the same way of saying those who trust in him. Those who trust in him are the recipients of salvation and light and this stronghold for his life. And so this is an invitation, friends, to believe. To believe as David did. Belief is not something that is 100%. It's not an on and off switch that we have no belief and then we have perfect, unassailable belief and trust. Trust sometimes waxes and wanes. The level of faith grows, but sometimes it diminishes. Some of us wrestle with assurance because we think, maybe I don't have enough faith. But God doesn't say, seek my faith perfect, or seek my face perfectly. He doesn't say, believe without any wavering whatsoever. He says, come to me, and then I am your stronghold. Come to me, and I am your light. It is about the one we look to, the one we put our faith in, that saves us and rescues us. Cast yourselves on God's mercy. And yes, cast yourselves upon Christ, who's the embodiment of all of these promises here, fulfilling all of them for his people. And I love this statement David makes. I believe, what is it that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living? Several things that can be said here but just two brief ones. He knows immediately that he will see God and God's goodness in this life. Even though things might not make sense, even though maybe there's abuse and, and terrible things that have happened to him in the past, he knows in this life, God's goodness is on him. God is good and he will see this God in this life as he lives. That's a great hope for us. That the Christian, yes, sometimes we struggled through seasons of deep darkness. But we know in this land, as we live, we will see his goodness. The goodness of the Lord 
is ours to see and behold. But I think there's an even greater truth embedded here. And while it has great hope now, it's even greater hope in the future because I think this land of the living is ultimately a reference to our eternal dwelling with God. The land where only those who are truly living abundantly in Christ are given eternal life in the presence of God forever. This is a statement that God's salvation, his light, his protection is not just for this life, but even more, it takes us to the halls of eternity forever and ever into the land of the living where we will gaze with our eyes upon the goodness of the Lord. We will behold the incarnate son, Jesus Christ. We will see with eyes of faith, God himself forever and ever. I think this is the greatest of the promises that are held out to him. God's promise to be our savior is not just for this life, but even more, it's for eternity. When every tear will be wiped away from our eye, when every sickness and difficulty of this life will be eradicated from every disability, when it will be gone as we are in the presence of God forever. There's a philosophy of life. Some would say maybe a worldview that David is espousing here. A philosophy of life. It's not, I'm going to live for a while. I'll live my best life now. And then I die and fall into nothingness. David thoroughly and completely rejects that as we ought to as well. Life is not about the here and now. It's not about getting all that I can, squeezing every ounce out of this life that I can because I die and can't take anything with me. No. David's philosophy of life is this. I will live now without fear of man to the glory of God. And after death, I will live eternally in the presence of God. I can live now without fear of man, without fear of anything that will happen to me because I have the face of God. Because I have his salvation, his light. He is my stronghold. And that's why he makes this final exhortation twice in the last verse. He's speaking to himself here. This isn't a declaration of the congregation. This is a singular verb speaking to one person, to himself. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Why? God is acting. God is present. God is at work. God is doing. This is not a call to passivity for the Christian to sit back and don't do anything, but it's a reminder that God is the one actively saving his people. It's a call for us to humble service, to rely upon God and his actions, to light your way, to save you, to protect you, and to bring you into his eternal kingdom. Waiting's hard, isn't it? especially when we don't know the results. Medical tests are the worst. It's oftentimes a life and death issue. What will the number be when it comes back? And waiting is torturous. But we have certainty of the end. The waiting for us is not torture. The waiting for us is glorious because every day we can meditate on what will be true, what God is doing. We can look forward every day waiting is now a joy for the Christian. It's a delight when we know what is coming, when we know our God, when we know his goodness. And I think there's something all of us need to hear right now as be strong. Let your heart take courage. We live in uncertain times. Many would say unprecedented. I don't know about that, but our times are disorienting. Things that we thought we could take for granted, no longer we can do so. Living in the world is just different now than it was a few years ago. 
Be strong, brothers and sisters. You have a savior who is greater than anything else in this world. And that's why we need to grab hold of God's promises here and now. See how they continue into eternity as these promises are eternal for us. And we can set our hope more fully upon God and his provision for us in Christ and wait for him. And we can know fully that he is our light, our salvation, the stronghold of our life. And we can say, whom shall we fear? Of whom shall we be afraid? Amen. Let us look to the Lord in prayer. These are very precious promises, O Lord. And we thank you that because of Christ, they're ours. That we can grab onto them, that we can meditate upon them, that we can now plead that you would be faithful to fulfill them. Lord, grow us in grace as we look to you, your promises, and to Jesus himself. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you have promised that we, even in this life, even now, get to look upon the goodness of you, our God. So may we do that, and may you strengthen us. May you enable us to be strong, to take courage as we wait for you. In Christ's name we pray. For listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.